Hey there, Light Pollution News listeners. It's Bill, and I have a couple of quick things I want to pass along to you before the show begins. First, we've added a new texting feature to the show. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments that you'd like to make and be interested in having read on a future show, please check out the new Text Us button on the episode page from whatever podcast player that you are using. Second, we're going to try something new for our June recording. Now, I'm not 100% sure on how this will work yet but I will be offering current paid subscribers a chance to watch a live feed, perhaps add commentary and questions during the show. I'll be emailing our paid subscribers this month with the invites. If you are a paid subscriber, thank you, and definitely be on the lookout. I will say one caveat. I'm honestly not sure how this will work yet, so please be patient with me as I navigate through the uh, this new step forward for us here at Light Pollution News. All right, on to the show. Light Pollution News, September 2023, Sensory Deprivation. Do we have a treat for you today? An excellent panel featuring Frank Torina and the Adler Planetarium's Ken Walchek. This month, we look at Cleveland's new plan to breathe life into its downtown. Are net zero light pollution goals commendable? Starlink is now photobombing radio observatories. Is astrotourism good for parks? Listen to two very pertinent poems you'll not want to miss. And there's been a theft. Care to know what's gone missing? It's time for another Light Pollution News. All this and much more coming right up. Welcome to another Light Pollution News. I'm your host, Bill McGinney. Right back on schedule this month. We have a lot for you today. As a reminder, if you're new to listening, you can check out all of these links and more over at lightpollutionnews.com. We release the show monthly, so be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. If you have any comments about any of the articles or items discussed here, feel free to shoot me an email directly at bill at lightpollutionnews.com. Or you can even message us on Instagram over at light.pollution.news. Or you can find us on LinkedIn over at Light Pollution News. Today, you're in luck. I have assembled a great panel of guests for you. Joining us today, we have Mr. Frank Torina, a man who I'm hoping will be able to enlighten us on all of the joys and tribulations of park outreach. Frank, you've been working with the National Park Night Skies Program for over 15 years. That's almost longer than some of our listeners have been alive. What's changed over that time period? You know, I think probably the first thing that comes to mind is just the greater awareness of the light pollution issue. Uh, and then when I started with the Park Service in, geez, 2004-ish, 2006, there was, what we were doing mostly with the Night Sky program was more just education, explaining to park managers and the public why this was even an issue. And in the years since then, you know, that understanding and that, you know, love of the, of the resource has grown exponentially. So I think that's the biggest change I've seen is just, it's been interesting and, and exciting to be kind of on the ground floor of this new and growing environmental issue that people are just starting to really discover. Do you have a lot more knowledgeable people coming through? And so I, I retired from the park service in 2020. So I did have about 15 years of, of experience with them. So just like what I'm talking about, my my opinions and ideas that I'm expressing today are are more my own, so I'm not speaking for the Park Service. What about on the astronomy? And have have you found that that people who go to these programs have more knowledge? Yes, 
you know, I've kind of been exposed to some incredible astronomers and, and night sky advocates that are really kind of doing amazing things to kind of push this this movement forward. And I do think that overall, again, that maybe this is just part of how my community has changed, but I've just seen a, a growing understanding and a willingness to accept the importance of, of this resource and of, of night sky protection and, and astronomy in general. It's definitely a vanishing resource. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Also with us today is a true heavyweight and someone I've personally leaned on to get a bit of education myself, Mr. Ken Walzak. Ken, I'm pronouncing that Walzak right, right? You could do Volchek. Volchek, okay. There we go, Volchek. Hey, how about that? Welcome to the show, Ken. <laughs> Ken, your background spans quite a bit, including the, the Far Horizons program at the Adler Planetarium over there in Chicago. And I'm curious about that because the work you did to you actually helped create one of the largest urban night sky places. Was actually the, was it the first urban night sky place over there in Chicago? We're still the world's largest. That, that's pretty amazing. Why don't you tell me something about that? Yeah. So just a little bit about what I do at Adler Planetarium. We lead a project called Far Horizons, and we work with students, primarily high school students, and we have a good core of volunteers, adult volunteers, and we do real science. So we like design and build instruments and experiments that we use for research. And so in every step of the process, there'll be like students involved. We're always looking for real world, real world you know, applications. It's not just collecting the data, but it's actually doing something with it. So back in, I think, 20, 2019, I think we started, we got a relationship with the Cook County Forest Preserve. So our urban night sky place is called Palos Preserves, is about 25, 25 kilometers so outside from downtown. And it's 7,000 acres, so it's a pretty large area. And there's almost no light fixtures in the entire area. And so we worked with our students taking data on the conditions there, doing lighting inventories, doing all the things you need to do a, a, a proper submission to the Dark Sky International for a designation. And it was great work. I mean, we're getting students out in the dark, places that one of our students even said, like, they got home and they told their parents about where they were. And they said, really, there's no lights there. And their parents were like, no, there's no such thing as a place without lights. They literally couldn't even, you know, they're urban dwellers and they're used to it. So it was a great opportunity to do like a living lab of the, of the night for our students. And then ended up after two years of work, we got our uh, designation as now still the world's largest urban night sky place. Were, were the kids kind of terrified being out there at night? You know, there there are a mixture of experiences like that. I, and, you know, I, you got to be sensitive to it because, you know, if you grew up in a city, you know, you're always told by your parents, oh, don't go down that dark street or that dark alley or whatever. You know, you equate darkness with fear. And this is, a, I think, a great opportunity to say that, you know, it's not darkness is actually just a very natural part of our world. And and it could be as comforting and, and exciting as, as the day. You know? So for the Urban Night Sky Place, what do you have to do to maintain that designation? Primarily is making sure that you maintain your lighting inventory, that there's no additional lighting. It's also about a lot of outreach and a lot of engagement with the public. And the the area that our Urban Night Sky Place is literally surrounded by light. You know, it's out in the near suburbs of Chicago. And so 
we, well, maybe I'll get into it later, but, you know, we're always doing experiments there at the forest preserve to, at the Palos preserves to see what the conditions are like, and then start looking for places that we can even start addressing light that's encroaching in on the, on the area. So to maintain it, it's not, it's the, just to make sure you don't do the wrong thing, which I think we're all on board. <laughs> we're not putting up any uh, 5,000 K wall, wall packs. Yeah. You don't want any bright Amazon ordered floodlights, huh? Not this mm-hmm. time around. <laughs> yeah, outreach is pretty amazing, right? I think we can all agree on that. I know I used to do outreach here for City Skies in Philadelphia, which is a program that I believe the Franklin Institute received NASA funds to help all parts of the city actually stargaze. And I was impressed with over, I did this from, I think, the 2011 on through right before the pandemic. And then after pandemic, things changed. But I was impressed with the knowledge gain of the kids over that time. In the beginning, you know, they would come, the parents would come in, and they, they would just kind of want to see something. But as the, the years rolled by, and this is a credit to, you know, all of our technology and everything, the kids came super knowledgeable. I couldn't answer some of their questions. And the parents kind of just looked there like wondering what's going on. It was pretty impressive. I. I really, really do love doing some of the outreach. I know you both do a lot for your communities. So that's great to hear. Let's, how about we get to it tonight? I want to start off with our policy segment because there's a lot to discuss. We'll begin with this article from Plain Dealer Cleveland with inspiration from Indianapolis. Destination Cleveland plans major downtown light installation as reported by Susan Glazer. Things are about to get brighter in Cleveland, and that's not a euphemism. Utilizing projection tools, Cleveland, Ohio intends to mimic the successes of Indianapolis's nighttime engagement. The city of Indianapolis leaned on grants and community businesses to provide creativity and accessibility to create nightly light shows that span as high as the 280-foot-tall Soldiers and Sailors Memorial in the city's monument circle. Indianapolis utilized six high-lumen projectors that use a technique called Projection mapping. Projection mapping turns flat surfaces, building facades into three-dimensional surfaces, similar to experiences you may see at, say, Disney World. Destination Cleveland doesn't appear to have the deep pockets needed to pull off another Indianapolis. However, instead, they do plan to simply wash buildings and areas in colored light, utilizing spotlights and projectors. Think something you see outside in your neighborhood around Christmas time, just larger scale and, of course, much brighter. Destination Cleveland appears to have heard from local groups, including birders and downtown residents, whereby the organization hopes to assuage any concerns regarding unintended effects of the 24-7 lit environment. Of course, safety plays into this, but to their credit, Destination Cleveland and Ms. Glazer did not attempt to utilize fear as a tactic when making a case for the lighting plan. This plan appears to have near universal thumbs up from the media. Cleveland.com recently polled their own editorial board of whom all but one jubilantly supported the measure. The sole holdout was Lisa Garvin, who cited the effects of light pollution and referenced lingering crime issues as a potential setback for the plan. One person, Tom Beer, even proposed expanding the lighting to include Cleveland's very popular Flats area. Curious about where else Destination Cleveland garnered their inspiration? Well, look no further than our previous guest, Bill Green's Brussels and Montreal. Expect to see the new lighting make its debut this April for the NCA Women's Final Four. So when you hear stories like this, we're not talking about rote, aimless lighting. We're talking about artistic license. 
Can art be done in a way that checks all of the boxes from a light pollution standpoint? I'll, I'll jump in. I was going to say that, you know, there's a place for some of these things. And I think it, I, I'm not a, I call myself a, not a luxite, which means I don't believe that we shouldn't have light. But I think that, you know, doing it right, it could be entertaining. It could draw people to an area. It could be, you know, encourage some economic, you know, growth. But it just has to be really thoughtful and well-balanced. If this, for example, there is something about the 24-7, I said, or, you know, or maybe doing this all throughout the year in Cleveland. And that concerned me because during bird migration season, they're right there on the on Lake Erie. A lot of birds migrate through that area and it doesn't take much to draw their attention. So if it's timed right and also thoughtful about the environment and ecology and all that, maybe. Frank, I think you want to chime in as well. The thoughts that came to mind when I was reading this article was, you know, there was a, an artist, I think his name was Christel. His thing was like draping things in fabric and, you know, calling it art. And he, a few years back, he wanted to drape the, like this pink fabric over the, the Arkansas River in Colorado. And, you know, it, there was... Some pros and cons, right? There were people on both sides of the of the issue, but it, it didn't happen because of the environmental consequences of doing that. And a big and a big big part of it was the environmental effects. So I think you know, just with every like every other endeavor, right? And art art needs to be subject to the same type of scrutiny in terms of what type of environmental impact it's going to have. And so I think that that you know these types of of light shows, granted they they are you know an important type of of public art, but they don't exist in a vacuum, right? They have to they have to be considered in the context of of how they're going to affect neighborhoods and and the night sky and you know wildlife. So I think it needs to be, like I said, I think there is a, a place for these types of, of types of installations, but I think they have to be done with sensitivity and in the context of, of the effects that they might have. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these installations in Indianapolis, and I'm not sure specifically what they're referring to in Montreal and Brussels. I don't know if Montreal has such installations. I, I can't I honestly didn't dig around too much on that one, but but to your point, I think that's a that's a really good point about balancing the environmental effects of the art. I mean, who doesn't like art and who doesn't like good environment? By the way, I was going to say that I have I haven't actually seen what the the art installation is or commercial installation, however they're calling it. Uh, but I've been to the that area. I'm trying to remember what, what's the square name again. Monument Square. Yeah, Monument Square. I've been there before in Indianapolis, and I've also seen it from the stratosphere. I don't know if I mentioned that to you, but one of the things we do at the Adler is we've designed a system that we fly to the stratosphere on high-altitude balloons that images the Earth at night. So we map light pollution. And when you mention this, and we've done a number of flights over Indianapolis, and I actually have results from... We can actually see Monument Square or whatever from the stratosphere, and it's pretty bright. Wow. So it's really bright. So you've seen before and after. I, that's the question. When I saw that article, it, said, it seems like they do this on certain times and occasions, right? It's not, yeah. Yep. I, I can't guarantee whether the observations we have are 
from that when those lights were on. But it is, we actually, I'll, I'll share, actually, I'll share a image with you or, or a, actually a gift with you if you want that shows our observations of that area. Yeah, that'd be perfect. I, I My yeah. hunch is that, that Monument Square is well, is very, very bright normally. That's my hunch, right? I, I haven't been to that part of Indianapolis. I've only been to the Indy 500. It was daytime. I, I admit, I haven't been to Indianapolis that much. Well, I swear I'm not trying to beat us up off the bat, but I do have this one that's been two years in the making, which is quite astounding in its own right. Miami, not, not one to be known for its conservation of any kind, looks to be postponing, but quietly okaying 45 new giant LED billboards downtown and in public lands like parks, despite a wall of resistance from local residents and activists who fall hard to prevent the deterioration of their city. Citing fiscal reasons, Miami hopes that the massive LED billboards can bring much-needed funds into the government. However, just two weeks ago, an article came out in Political Cortadito whereby LED billboard companies had spent upwards of $300,000 in campaign donations to Miami Council representatives. Media and op-ed pieces appear consistently against the politicians in this one. But before I open it up, there's I, I came across this article. New Zealand's first dark sky park, YET, is in serious danger of losing its designation. And much of that is due to recent subdivisions and gr- industrial growth. The continued use of 4,000 Kelvin LEDs in street lighting are cited as a major cause. In the five years it took proponents to conserve the area, it appears the community may, be, may have reneged on its promise to implement the Tasman Environmental Plan as it pertains to light retrofits. Waiiti Recreation Reserve gained its designation back in July of 2020. What to make of these? Okay, so I guess the the thing that came to mind when I was reading the article about Miami was that, you know, it was maybe a a small step in the right direction. I think that, you know, it showed that public opposition matters, even in the face of this political influence peddling. Right. So I think it's it's was it was encouraging that the outreach or the outcry from the public has at least made the council a little bit less excited or about about approving this measure. So I, I think to me that was a little bit of an encouraging encouraging news. Yeah, they're they're fighting hard. Their the community is really fighting hard against those billboards and it's been years in making and I hope it's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I mean I kind of agree with Frank the this I think kind of what he started with beginning of the show saying like I think more people are aware now, more people are realizing that uh, this is something to address and they should be, you know, speaking up is kind of showing its face in this, you know. And, you know, I was following a story earlier this year, I think it was in Baltimore, it was very similar, where they, their city approved a number of illuminated billboards and they had a similar pushback. And I'm curious to see how that ended up. It might be very similar. Yeah, it's good to see yeah, I, I don't know about some of the the political aspects of that story, but you know, hopefully the community engagement part is is winning the day. Yeah, bottom line, people really don't want to have these. They want, I mean, they want to put these in parks. That's pretty astounding <laughs> in its own right. What about the Yet? What, what what about that piece? We have a place that had a designation and is actually in danger of losing it. And Ken, I know you're on the board of. Dark Sky International. Have you heard anything related to this piece right here? 
No, actually, I haven't. And it's it's interesting because I know New Zealand's also I guess, started an effort to possibly be become an entire dark sky country. So it does seem sort of counter to that. And I know they've they've done some really good work there in New Zealand to try to abate light pollution. And this is so this is a little bit of a surprising story. Yeah, I would I would be interested. I don't know anything from Dark Sky International perspective, only that you have to submit annual or biannual reports. So that would be one of those things where it would show up as a as a possible thing that needs to be addressed. It'd be, yeah, it'd be a really sad thing if I know how, how long it takes to get some of these designations approved and, and created for it to be thrown away by maybe some encroaching development is, is really unfortunate. Let's hope it doesn't go that way. I, I mean, there's two sides of the picture here. You know, you have ecotourism, right, which I think astrotourism fall under. And then you have the development side, which, you know, in an area that has a dark sky designation, I feel like there would be more attention paid to some of these rules versus say, you know, like here, here in Philly, like, you know, I mean, it's just people bickering. It's not, we don't have any, any designation. We're trying to protect any rules. We're trying to, any points we're trying to hit. Right. Yeah. You know, I'd say that one of the most important parts of this is that you can have, I've kind of learned this through processes I've been involved in where you can have all the ordinances in the world, but if they're not enforced, you're not going to make any progress. And, and true enforcement really, I always believe comes from the people where if, you know, you campaign to get a, a, some sort of like lighting ordinance on your town, that's, that's only the beginning of the process. You got to get buy-in from everybody else. And then the community supports that. And, so if there are offenders, you know, then you have to kind of raise a little bit of a noise to make sure that it's to the government to make sure that's being addressed. You know, if, it, if the ordinances are on the books. Frank, over in Colorado, I've been seeing a lot of places out there trying to get some dark sky designations. Have have you do you live in any of these towns? Are you aware of any of the issues, any of the things going on over there? Uh, you know, I know there are a number of, of dark sky communities a community called Westcliff down in the southern part of Colorado is fantastic. It's just such a great night sky. There's a lot of, usually in the fall, the Milky Way kind of goes right over the this mountain range called the Sangre de Cristos. Um, just fantastic. I'm working a little bit. I'm doing a some night sky photography workshop for NGO in Alamosa, Colorado, called San Luis Valley Go or Deselby Go. They're trying to create a night sky preserve down in the San Luis Valley. They have exceptional night skies. I did a workshop down there from Great Sand Dunes National Park, and the skies are just fantastic. Just really, you know, very clear that the weather conditions there are often very optimal, and you get some really amazing night skies. So I know there are some some others that are in the works, and I can't remember hearing one that you might know, Ken, about the, it was over on the western slope of Colorado or on Grand Junction that I believe was trying to get a designation, and I think that may have included Colorado National Monument over at Grand Junction, but there are several. It is a very active area. The the, the IDA Colorado chapter has done some great things and they've done, they've gotten the, the governor to sign a resolution creating, I think it was last June was like dark sky month. They got a lot of press. And so, yeah, there there's, it's a pretty active state in terms of, of night sky protection and advocacy. 
Yeah, I was curious because Denver is growing so fast. And I mean, last time I was in Denver was what? It was for 2018. I went out for GABF a few times and on a working side, not on a, the party side. <laughs> so I went out for the Great American Beer Fest a few times. And I remember flying into Denver at that time. The city was trying to get to the airport. And I think by this point, city's out to the airport now. Um, uh-huh. So I was wondering, because with all that buildup, all the way and all the, the flat land, you know, I assume that many of these these goals of, of trying to you know promote some some kind of light pollution abatement are facing some pushback. They're facing pushback from developers, probably, and probably from a lot of homeowners as well. It's probably a portal class four or five to the west, so not bad. You know, I definitely can see some. I'll take, stars. I'll, I'll take that, Frank. Portal <laughs> four is perfect for me. That's great. Yeah, so, it, so I can sometimes, you know, if the conditions are good. I can see the Milky Way kind of arcing over my, you know, over the house. But to the east, it's a whole different story. So I have this, you know, massive light down from Denver, sort of hitting the the more pristine night sky, like directly over my house. So I, you know, I am in this, this, I'm like right in the battleground between light pollution and, you know, and better quality skies. So I just have to look up at night to see that, that, you know, conflict. And, you know, what I've noticed with the nights, the lights of Denver, and I've lived here for about five years now, is that the color of the light dome has been changing. When I first got there, you know, the I took some pictures and the the sky glow over Denver was definitely had this orangey, you know, amber cast to it. And now it's it's as the years have gone on with more and more LEDs, it's gotten kind of bluer and whiter as, you know, year by year. So and as an astrophotographer, that's a little tricky for me because the amber glow from like low pressure sodium was pretty easy to deal with in terms of getting it out of your images. But the sort of broad spectrum LED light is much trickier. So I've been kind of cursing that as the years go by. It's been terrible. Yeah, I think Ken could probably relate to this one. On full moon nights, they're not nearly as bright as cloudy nights. Cloudy nights are actually brighter than yeah. full moons here in Philly. In fact, we recorded if if you're you know use SQMs, you know, just I think thirteen point four magnitudes for our second squared on a cloudy, snowy. Uh, oh, night. there you go. Yeah, I get pretty. <laughs> well, this leads perfect into the next article we have. Um, some interesting news out of the UK, whereby City of London has adopted a net zero light pollution requirement. Developers in a section of the city known as the Square Mile now must submit detailed plans of how to minimize light pollution when applying for changes. The requirement apparently passed with unanimous support in the Planning and Transport Committee of London. Explicit in its justification was the issue of light pollution, further supported by energy use and ecological determinants. So light pollution was the first justification there, supported by energy use and ecological determinants. The provision makes exceptions for security, inclusion, and accessibility lighting. Staying in the UK, the House of Lords has tasked the Science and Technology Committee to tackle poorly understood, poorly regulated noise and light pollutants. The Guardian article implicates 130,000 of healthy years lost to 
noise pollution in the UK, with 40% of Britons exposed to unhealthy levels of road traffic noise. In addition, it's mentioned that both noise and light pollution can contribute to heart disease and premature death, the latter being backed up by Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine study. And heck, why not cover this while we're here? There's even a Tory MP over in the UK who's aiming to breathe life back into glowworms. We need to protect our dark skies, Mr. Baker said. Baker appears to be working with the organization Bug Life to promote not just dark skies, but reduce use of pesticides and habitat restoration. So Ken, I just want to shoot this over to you real fast, because we had one of your colleagues, John Barantino, on a few months back. And I know you're very familiar with John from your work with dark skies. And he mentioned about trying to get to a net zero light pollution plan. And this kind of feeds in from what we're just talking about in, you know, in a Denver experience, right? Is it better to stop light pollution in its tracks where it's at right now and hold it? Is it even realistic to push it to try and like remove or try and improve skies? I, I think it really depends. And it's a town by town, state by state or government by government question because in some places, when you have, you know, like the, the towns of Frank was talking about that have, you know, been really thoughtful about maybe protecting their night skies in Colorado because of realizing it's a valuable resource. For them, it might there might be much more chance and much more support. But, you know, one of the things that I see, you know, like the city of London story and you know, just to just to clarify, the city of London is, is like a think of it like a borough, like a small part of London. It's actually not the entire city of London. It's it's called the city of London. So this is, you're not going to be changing. You're not going to see the Milky Way from downtown London anymore. But if you have one entity that actually says, hey, let's try this, let's do this. We care about this. That could that could lead to other other people seeing it as an example. And maybe it gets picked up, you know, the, you know, the British government just did a report on the, oh, I'm, forgetting the name right now, but on light pollution as a national issue. So you, you just put these pieces together, you put these pieces of the puzzle together and it starts building something. You're not just going to change it all overnight. Frank, you have anything on this? Yeah, I, I love the article on noise and light because <laughs> that was, you know, the whole impetus behind the natural sounds and night skies division in the park service, right? You know, when we were initially just the natural sounds program, and there was this fledgling night sky program that was kind of basically two guys in the National Park Service that were cared, that cared about the issue. And they started this little program, maybe it was three or four people that really didn't have a home in the, in the Park Service. And the administration decided to put them in with the Natural Sounds program. And we became the Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division. And, you know, we talked a lot about as a staff about how those two fields fit together. And, you know, one of the ideas that kept coming up when we were having these discussion was this idea of sensory ecology, right? And, and just the ability for species wildlife to use, have, or take full advantage of the, of the sensory stimuli that are in the environment and both noise and light pollution interfere with that ability. So we kind of came up and, and played around with this idea of sensory ecology as sort of the, the thread that wove through both of those issues. And they all, they have a lot of similarities in terms of the effects on physiology and the psychosocial issues. 
circadian rhythm issues, sleep disruption, you know, and all the negative effects that that can result from from that circadian rhythm disruption and sleep disruption. So it really was a, a good fit that, you know, that we had these two programs together. And this article really, I think, you know, talks a lot about that connection and, you know, just how both of these issues can have similar effects on people's physiology and their, their psychology and their, their the, you know, psychological health. So, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting article from that, from that extent. Yeah, I think you make a great point on the actual psychological well-being of someone. Is that enough to make noise or light pollution an environmental pollutant? Yeah, I think it's it's clearly you know an, an environmental issue that that is equivalent to the health effects from water pollution or air pollution or any other type of environmental degradation that we were likely to encounter. And I think we have a you know, the fact that these areas have been overlooked until recently doesn't really diminish their importance in terms of, of you know, environmental and social health. Yeah, you know, I was going to add on to that where, you know, kind of relating to that last part of the story with the MP who's looking at trying to make a better environment for bugs, which are, you know, part of the major part of the food chain, pollinators, they're, you know, they have so many roles that in our society. And, and you think about like, kind of going off what Frank was saying is that, you know, you have these environmental stressors, it not, no one of them is the cause of all the problems, for example, of like the collapse of, of insect populations and species diversity, but each one of them ha- plays a role. And if you ignore one, you're not solving the problem. You know, if you ignore some of them, you're not solving the problem. And I think it's about time that we start thinking of light pollution as being an actual pollutant. Yep. Well, that part lays, I agree. That part lays real nicely, actually, again, into our next story. I like how this is lining up. This is really good. <laughs> so staying on topic for policy for just one more second, I came across this article from WPBF News. Environmental organization files a 106-page report over light pollution on Palm Beach, threatens lawsuit. The complaint cites local homes and residential buildings for violating ordinances designated to protect sea turtle hatchlings, including nighttime lighting violations, poor nest markings, and evidence of vehicles on the beach. The organization is giving Palm Beach two months before they decide to file a lawsuit against the county. Per the article, Palm Beach County's Environmental Resource Management believes around 2 million sea turtles hatch in Palm Beach County every year making it the number one place in the U.S. for sea turtle nests per mile. Apparently, the breakers, a building cited in the complaint, drew passionate words from Bear Warriors United, the conservation group, filing suit. You can see their light from nighttime from a mile away. It was lit up like NASA launch pad. Their lighting you can see from outer space, I'm pretty sure. Well, then, Ken, can you see this from where you're at over in Chicago? That's a big question I have. <laughs> With, what do you mean like the similar well I, evidently the breakers you can see from space the, the light that oh. they have shining over the beach here probably if we have ISS images of it and the ISS the astronauts there sometimes take nighttime photos of the earth at night and it's one of our best sources of, of good high, high resolution color information I, you know I could pull up but I like to dig around and maybe get back to you on that but uh, yeah I'm you know what I 
really was interested in the story and I, I tried to follow up as much as I could. It seems like the group that did it, they have like kind of mainly a Facebook presence. And I was really trying to find that 106 page report. I, I thought like, man, that's great from a, these, they're not pulling around, you know, they're, they're actually uh, filing lawsuits. They're actually compiling information and data. And this is the way to do it. I, I, I would love successful. to know the, the history behind a name, Bear Warriors United. <laughs> Bears, I'm sure, have been in Florida, but I'm not sure when the last time. Are they still in Florida? I don't know. That, that part of Florida? I, who knows? Who knows? I'm just curious about the name there. <laughs> Uh, it was but, actually, I think one of the founders, she had a bear encounter once and something that was like just really kind of, I don't want to speak for her, but you know, really changed her, her philosophy. And, and it, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. As a Florida resident, how that connects, but yeah. <laughs> hey, whatever, whatever it takes, right? Because well, it's, it's interesting to see, right? It's interesting to see organization actually try and hold a county's feet to the fire for ordinances. As you said before, Ken, it's one thing to have them. It's another thing to enforce them. And you have an organization that's actually saying, hey, Here's the law. Why aren't you doing anything about it? I want to take a quick breather right here. I'm very excited to have these fine gentlemen with me today. The hands-on science educator, we got Frank Torina, who has phenomenal astrophotography pictures and inhaling all the way from the Adler Planetarium over in Chicago. Kim Walchak said it right this time, right? I've been killing Colorado too. Sorry, that's my East Coast side. I need to say Colorado. I know this. Before we get, we get going, I want to talk real fast about some of the work that's involved in bringing you the show every month. And Ken, who recently became a supporter, which means so much to me. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for helping us defray some of the server and production costs that we incur in building the show on a monthly basis. Make no mistake, Light Pollution News is a full month process. Starting at the top of the month, we do our best to try and scurry together all of the pertinent articles that affect the topic of light pollution. Then we build the show based on what we find, sort the pertinent articles, remove the unnecessary ones. We essentially are reviewing upwards of about 80 articles a month. Once we have those pieces in hand, we'll record the show. Typically on a Sunday afternoon, it's my favorite part of the whole process. I get to talk to these cool dudes. And, and then we send it out to editing to Rockstar Caden. From there, we finalize the show and then move to our marketing push on all platforms, Reddit, our website, Instagram, our newsletter, LinkedIn, and where we build month-long content to help, to help that show to engage you, the listener. So what I'm asking for you today is if you like what we're doing here, if it adds value to the discussion, to the topic, to your knowledge regarding the issues of light pollution, please, why not chip in a few dollars each month to help us continue to focus the light only where it's needed. And if that's not your thing, no worries. Well, how about you share the show with your friends or colleagues who might find it interesting or simply go out to your favorite podcasting app and you can provide a rating and review as a way of saying thanks. We deeply appreciate you, the listener, and we want to provide the best experience and best news discussions as it relates to all that's going on in the world of light pollution. Please feel free to reach out to me directly at bill at lightpollutionnews.com. Ken, you're a supporter. Do you have anything you'd like to add? And folks, as a backstory, Ken was one of the first people I talked to when learning about light pollution myself. I'm very honored to have you as a supporter, Ken. So thank you very much. Oh, but thank you. It's a small price to pay. I mean, I, I, I'm a podcast junkie and I just listen to so many podcasts and, and believe it or not, I actually listen to a lot of light pollution podcasts. There, there are a handful out there, but you know, I was really impressed by the way you pulled together just what's going on and then address it and think about it. And, and you know, I like what you do at the show. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to pay a monthly fee to get on the show. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, I, I had to bring Kennel. He's, he's very knowledgeable. And I, I, I love the, uh, and, and Ken called me out on something early. So, so that's another reason. <laughs> 
getting back to the news, we do have one crime story to report, and this might be a first. There's been a theft, about 3,000 pounds, that's almost $4,000 in equipment, including observing equipment such as binoculars, eyepieces that are used in outreach, were taken between July 21st and July 28th of this year from an observatory building in Wales. The building, which houses outreach materials, is apparently quite remote and even inaccessible to the public. The loss has forced public events in the International Dark Sky Park of the Elam Valley to be tailored down for the duration of summer. For those curious, in addition to Televi eyepieces and some solar binoculars, the thieves got away with a Skywatcher EvoStar 120mm telescope, an EQ3 mount, and I would have really loved to see the video of this, a Skywatcher Skyliner 250 picks Dobsonian, which is a 10-inch telescope for those of you at home. That's a big boy. That'll be fun to watch thieves scurry off a remote field to their car with. I, I got nothing on that one, guys. Yeah, those are. That's a lot of equipment that weighs a lot of pounds. <laughs> so I can't imagine hauling that, you know, across the field and putting it in your car. It's just those are huge scopes. What do you do? Take an ATV out there and throw it in the back? I mean, how how do you get these? Ken, what kind of scope you guys have like for outreach over there at the Adler? What do you use for the outreach? Actually, well, we have an observatory. We're starting to use it for research purposes now. It's a 24-inch plate microscope in our observatory. And then for our outreach work, we, we use a lot of like maybe six-inch and eight-inch Dobsonians. They're so easy to take around and things like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, like this this week, looking at Saturn, right? Stuff like mm-hmm. that. You you it's always always great. We we just did an outreach event where we were able to capture a a few of the really bright Messier clusters, you know, and it's, it's great. Like you can see those from almost everywhere. And I actually, I actually knew someone, I actually do know someone, I shouldn't say knew, he's still alive, thank God. He lives in Queens and he'll look at double stars exclusively because that's all you can see in Queens. But he'll look at double stars and actually, you know, go out observing, you know, most nights of the year and just being able to pick out double stars. Why not? Why not? You work with what you got, right? Uh, sticking with astronomy, ever notice any green trails following any of those Starlink photobombs? Well, I kid, but apparently Elon's pride and joy when he's not installing giant blinding X's on top of buildings are leaking radiation. This comes to us from Business Insider. Starlink satellites are leaking radiation into protected 150.05 to the 153 megahertz band. One astronomer compared the impact to a regular band of static on a radio that occurred exactly every five minutes. Such interference impacts... The study of dark matter, study of star formation, not to mention essentially bricks, millions of dollars of telescope, radio systems built over the past decades. Starlink actually has worked with astronomers, and they've probably been one of the few companies in the communications world that right now that they're sending up, you know, telescopes and they try and put the coatings on and they try and, you know, actually, as I understand it, they're actually trying to dim down some of that brightness. But this is a new issue that they probably didn't even—they probably weren't even aware of. The overall sky brightness that increased from satellites was a really interesting paper because you know satellites are so—they're they're so dim and they're scattered across the sky, and to realize or to be able to to measure the impact that that has on overall sky brightness, I thought was just incredible. It was very eye-opening because I never would have guessed that that the satellites, all the satellites combined would have that kind of an impact on sky brightness. So I thought, you know, that the the Starlink 
satellite trains and stuff that I get in my astrophotography all the time. You know, there that's the most noticeable, probably the most noticeable aspect of this issue. But but you know, I think that paper did a really good job of of you know bringing some some attention to the to the issue of of you know how satellites impact the sky quality. Yeah, that that was definitely something I know when John was on. He he mentioned about you know that we had an article that came up on on the brightness that was going to be apparent with those satellites. So let's stay on the topic of education real fast. The dark skies convert into big time recruiting tools for future researchers. The Greater Big Bend International Dark Sky Reserve sits as one of the largest certified dark sky places in the world at fifteen thousand square miles, anchored together. This reserve is by the McDonald Observatory, which sports the 10-meter Hobby Eberly Telescope, which is the third largest optical telescope in the world, the 82-inch Otto Struve Telescope, and the 107-inch Harlan J. Smith Telescope. The University of Texas has been able to successfully identify new black holes, new planets, star collisions, and more. However, that's only part of the story. The other part is the legwork of Stephen Hummel and Bill Wren. Over the course of more than a decade, these two work closely with intermediary organizations, including Texas by Nature, an organization founded by former First Lady Laura Bush, and the Texas Railroad Commission. Hummel and Wren were able to obtain buy-in for installing responsible lighting fixtures from one of the largest oil and gas producing centers in the world. One such facility run by Cal Petroleum cited improved visibility following a dark sky-friendly lighting overhaul. In the past, our approach has been to get a whole bunch of lights and blast things up. But that leaves a lot of shadows, says Chris Gafford, safety manager at Callan Petroleum. You get the right kind of lights and space them out in the right way, and it's actually better lit up. Fewer dark spots, you don't have guys tripping over stuff. Another company, Howard Energy, also reported improved safety after converting over to more responsible, deliberate lighting. This sounds like a great win for everybody, a win for the community, a win for the business, a win for science, and oddly enough, a relative win for the local ecology. Is what Hummel and Wren did at McDonald repeatable for other areas that lack the major astronomical research centers? You know, once you have something that's so valuable, I, I don't know if you've ever been to McDonald Observatory, but it's amazing location. Yeah, no, oh, you yeah. got to get out there. You can tour the telescopes and, oh, and, and the location. Is amazing. And like you said, it's just a north of Alpine, Texas, which is north of Big Bend, which I've been to as well. And you're like that whole area. It's just like a, a valuable resource. And you have these very expensive research telescopes there. And obviously lighten up the night sky and making them useless would be, you know, just a detriment to the economy. But I think this is what this really inspiring thing about this story is that the the two quotes you had were actually from the petroleum industry folks saying, hey, you know what? We were asked to do this light better. And not only is it better for the observatory, but it's also better for us. You know, there's they so often I think people don't see good examples of lighting because they always think that, oh, more light is what you need. Once you see how the lighting can be done right, you're like, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, we don't have to just blast light everywhere anymore. It's actually better for us. So I, that was kind of inspired by the story. We have in the Park Service dealt with oil and gas on a number of occasions. The probably the most infamous was the Bakken shale field up in North Dakota, South Dakota, that area. There's a park up there called the, it's the Teddy Roosevelt Homestead. And we 
put some we put did some measurements of the night sky there before this big increase in in oil and gas production in that field and and went back three years later after the boom and or during the boom and saw a 300% increase in sky brightness from that park. And so it's something that we've, you know, the Park Service has always dealt with and been aware of. Another, another satellite image of that Bakken shale field shows this gigantic bright spot. that's it, comparable in size to like the city of Chicago, right? But it's, in reality, it's not that big. It's this has to do with some of the reflectivity and the, how the satellite captures the data, but but it's still very bright there. And the the you know there's there's a lot of data that shows the the impact of oil and gas development on on night skies, mostly due to flaring. So it's the the off gassing and flaring the the methane that's being released and other gases. So something that we've been that the Park Service had has worked on and in other places too. We worked in the Four Corners area and near Chaco Canyon or Chaco Culture National Park. They had some potential effects from from proposed leases for natural for oil and gas development. And we worked with them to try to identify ways to assess the, the impacts from oil and gas. So it is a big issue. And, you know, it's something that, that, does, that can really affect the nice guys in national parks. And I think, you know, that the oil and gas industry has been like with the, like the case of McDonald Observatory. I think they've been pretty amenable to looking at the issue and trying to, to resolve it as best they can. Frank, I want to ask about those, those the, the bright lights up in Dakotas. So sure. North Dakota, is most of that just coming from the flares? I think we determined that most of it was from the flares. The once the you know the the drilling derricks can be pretty brightly lit, but once the pads are once the wells are in production, the amount of lighting required to maintain those sites is is, is decreased. So it's mainly the the drilling with the big derricks and the and then the flaring the gases. So I guess how often do the flares go up? Are you aware of? I'm not really sure. I know we we did a little research to look at some of the possible ways of of minimizing the effects of flaring, and there are sort of like these cylinders that are chambers for flaring up flaring this gas, and so it's kind of enclosed in this little silo that helps minimize the the, the light pollution from those. Right, because it's really bright. It's really bright when you have a flare, right? Yeah, it is very bright. Well, I mean, there's. Not much you can do with that, right? Uh, yeah, I mean it has to be it has to be dealt with, right? And I think yeah, I'm not an expert in oil and gas by any means, but just I think there's a way there there's benefits to recapturing that gas, right? And reusing it and using it rather than, than venting it. So I think it's in the best interest of oil and gas companies to try to minimize the amount of, of flare they do. But again, I think that's how it works. Moving on, you've heard me report on this in the past. I'm quite sure everyone is listening is aware of MSG, the same company that allegedly uses facial recognition software as a weapon against opposing attorneys. Well, MSG is in news again. This time they lit their new mega LED sphere in Vegas. In case you didn't see it, you can check it out in the show notes and watch the 4th of July celebration. And what's there to say about this globe, this this giant sun in the desert. It definitely delivered. While watching, you can notice significant and bright reflections cast against nearby buildings. 
I don't know what to think of this one. In one respect, I'll admit, like, the sphere definitely has a cool factor. It's pretty amazing what they, they can do with this actual LED ball screen thing they got. It's something novel and unique and embraces commercialism with a, wait for it, a gravity like no other. On the other hand, I'm not sure the term light pollution is sufficient to describe the level of light it wrought on a night or wherever night was left in Vegas. Anyone have any thoughts on the, the MSG sphere? I did see the the clip, you know, that they did that first demonstration. There was one amazingly ironic thing that they projected the nighttime of view of the of the earth on it. So you actually see all the light pollution and then wonder if it becomes another dot on the light pollution map. And and you you mentioned that thing about the I mean let's just look at the the immediate environment. And if you look at that video, you see like when it's going off showing all this stuff, you you see the facades of all these hotels next door being just lit up. And I'm like, I think they're 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 gonna have to cut their rates to get people to stay there. Put this way, to me it's like uh, you're not being a good neighbor, you know, and that's that a lot of times that's what it really comes down to. It's like if you're going to just like, you know, think if you went out in your backyard and blasted a stereo all night long, you know, you know, I think the neighbors would be annoyed. So I kind of equated to that and not even getting into all the ecological issues. I mean, that's beyond like blasting a stereo. That's like having a full on festival concert in your backyard every night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's Las Vegas, you know, I mean, what are you going to do, right? There's, there are some night sky data taken from southern part of Utah, 200 miles away from Vegas. And in the images, you can see the Lexor Tower light beam going up through the clouds. So, you know, it's, it's Vegas is Vegas. You know, I, I don't know. This is just kind of par for the course. You know, it, it is, it is just a ridiculous amount of light. And, and just completely unnecessary. But So is this building very efficient with all the LEDs it uses? <laughs> no, no. You know, it could be efficient and it's not a bunch of just incandescent bulbs flickering on. Yeah. But, but when you, yeah, I forgot how many total square footage of screen they have or whatever. There's, there's a big energy budget there, regardless of how efficient LEDs are. You're putting that much light out. You're, you're still using a lot of energy. Yeah, well, that's the trade-off with efficiency, right? In in the best world, the efficiency would require like you can get the same amount of light for less money, right? That's that's the benefit of the efficiency. I think some places have turned that on its head and said, oh, there's there's you know the lighting is more efficient, so I could put more lighting out, right? And then that's sort of like you know the the unfortunate aspect of of increasing efficiency. It gives some people motivation to just put out more light because they can afford it. Yeah. I think in many places you have, you know, facilities, budgets that probably haven't changed or adapted to, uh, to actual, the, the price of light. Right. So to your point, Frank, but yeah, I mean, it's Vegas. What what would you expect? And, you know, that's part of the, the ostentatious kind of characteristic of, of Vegas, right? That's why you go to Vegas, I guess. But it is interesting. It's up. And if anyone wants to, you know, have a glowing globe next to them, you can go stay at the hotel that Ken mentioned because you'll be able to – I don't know if your, your shades are actually going to do anything for that guy. <laughs> well, right on cue, John Barentine and Ruskin Hartley released Dark Sky International State of the Science 2023 report. And a report notes considerable rise in research focusing on artificial light at night. 
from just above over 500 articles way back in 2002 to close to 4,000 articles last year alone. I was lucky enough to virtually attend the 2023 Artificial Light at Night conference this year and was able to see many of these papers firsthand. However, I do have a confession. Ken, I was unable to catch your presentation. Would you be so kind as to give us like an overview of your talk? Yeah, it was on a method. So one of the, I mentioned earlier in the show that part of what we do at the Adler Planetarium is design and build instruments. And we've designed a, a camera. You've probably seen all sky images of the of the sky, right? Well, obviously, Frank, you have, you've worked with Dan yeah. and you know oh, that whole system. Right. So we, our camera only costs about $200 to make and it's an all sky camera. So you put it out at night, let it run all night long and collect it and then process the data afterwards. So the great thing about, I know like the National Park Service system costs a few tens of thousands of dollars, maybe. Ours costs about 200. So obviously the quality is not as top notch, but the great thing about having an inexpensive camera is that we deployed 10 of them simultaneously. And the reason why we wanted to do that is we spread them all around our urban night sky place, our Palos preserves, and outside the region around the preserves, simultaneously looking at the light domes that you can see and the light glow on the horizon. By putting those cameras kilometers apart, miles apart, you can actually triangulate and say like, oh, that dome over there, especially around Chicago, there's a lot of things contributing light, is maybe not the thing you think it is. Maybe it's some like, for example, a, a industrial facility very close to the border of the, the protected area, whereas there might be a town further away, you can actually determine where that light's coming from and you know, addressing an entire town's light might not be very easy, but you maybe address one business's light and that could actually help us do that thing where we want to make the skies better in, in our urban night sky place. That was our experiment. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. There's a lot of that type of research going on in the current field, right? Trying to just trying to geospatially analyze a lot of what the light pollution is and, and where it's at and how to how to understand, how to measure it. Right? Actually, do you mind if I chime in on one more thing about kind of commenting on John's report? Yes, uh, yes, feel free. So I thought one of the most important things that you mentioned about the, the state of the night report is that there were two decades ago, there were 500 articles or you know papers published on light pollution. And last year, there's 4,000. So wow, where did all this come from? Like, and, and that not only is there more interest and there's more focus on this and it's getting more information out there and we're learning more about it. But it, one of the things that really started that is that we actually started getting data, better data about the night skies from the National Park Services system, from some satellites. And as we start getting data, we're actually able to learn more things. And so this is just, I think, going to continue. It's It's almost like he just suddenly discovered a new kind of science almost, you know. What's the most unique thing you found this year for any of the papers that came to, to light? Let's see. Boy, boy, I don't know. There's just so much, especially in the ecological field, that it's it's pretty amazing. I, the Some of the work that's been done on insects has been pretty amazing, I think. It's just not even just a, a single species, but just cross species, you know, just this large scale impact of, of light at night on, on insects and what that's the outcomes of that are, are going to be very, very, very important. So I don't know that over the last year, that's something that comes to mind. Yeah. I, I found the, the actual, it was great to be at the conference to actually see these papers come up. And one of the things I found really interesting was some of the social discussions that some of the meta studies, I guess, 
and, you know, including the people's perceptions. Like, for instance, one of them was that people were in favor of light pollution mitigation, but they weren't in favor of any light pollution mitigation that reduced any street light brightness and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, a lot of us commented on that. That was one of the last talks of the entire conference that it was a real downer. It was a, it was a survey done in, in Switzerland where they, yeah, they were, like you said, you know, across different ages and everything else. Everybody's like, oh yeah, this is an issue. This is something that, yeah, I've heard more about and, well, we don't do anything about it. It's like, <laughs> what? It's like, no, that wasn't supposed to be the takeaway. Well, for those of you who are interested in reading the State of the Science Report, you can find a link over in our show notes as well. This is over on the Dark Sky International website. So I, I want to play this for you guys. It's an amazing poetic reading by Sense Turner. To quote the YouTube description, London Lit is a poetic exploration of the nocturnal city and a requiem for diminishing urban darkness. I find myself on this land and realize I've never truly known darkness. Time in the countryside shed a light on my concrete life. I grew up listening to the streets, talking about how the lights are blinding my eyes. And I'm thinking, people are not that different from the moths at night, getting lost in London's lights. They come for the culture, hypnotized by spotlights, dancing around their favorite artists. Many come for the fame, drawn to a dream, lured by the limelights they want to be seen. In a few dark corners, some are crystal balling. Most come for the promise of a fortune, magpie squawking. Others swear it's a spiritual calling. And some come to write their names in neon green graffiti glow splashed up a wall in the South Bank skate park, kick pushing after dark. Before LEDs and fluorescent bulbs, we filled the night with fire. And as powerful as fires roar, they never shook us out of balance. When blue lights shine during the night time, it pulls us out of rhythm. But fire red and soothing amber seem to be different. I never knew that the wealthiest areas are the darkest at night, or that most of us living in the UK can't see more than 30 stars. Who knew a third of our city's workforce is up and out with the foxes. I wonder how many suffer insomnia and what the actual cost is. Light workers raise their lightsabers cutting shapes in night sky cloth. Security guards armed with torches aim at night stalkers and fire light shots. Nightclubs base bump lasers into faces, red eyes doing the robot. When the night force flipped on switches, they turned the star lights off. Moonlight was once the main light, now it's consumed by the many more lights. Nocturnal creatures can't find the shoreline or navigate safely at nighttime. Our circadian rhythms all out of sync. Too much light and not enough closed eyes. So who gets the right to rest? And how long can we really deny the darkness? It's older than the sun. Yeah, that's that's a pretty great little poem, little video there on YouTube. I don't know how you guys felt about that. That I had to I had to play that. That, that was so cool. Just forward it over to me a couple of weeks back and a great little piece there. Yeah, I think that was amazing. I think we need more spokespeople like that for for the issue. I mean, she's very just very effective at getting her point across 
to maybe a, 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 an audience that we have a little trouble reaching. You know, I think that's, she just did a really a great job at, at sort of reaching out to that, that audience. Yeah, it's really effective. And, you know, this came up at the end of the Allen conferences. A few of us were talking about the next Allen conference is going to be in Ireland, 2025. We're like, maybe there should be an arts track, you know, a culture track, you know, where we're talking about. It's important that people see this not as a technical thing in their lives, but actually it needs vision, you know, but needs sort of some expression that might connect people to it. And, you know, like, like another example, and also what Frank's saying is, is also getting a different generation connected. You know, I think like Bonnie is one of those people that is, is just great. I'm seeing some new teenage faces and stuff in getting involved in light pollution. And, you know, a lot of them are being swayed by facts and figures. They're getting swayed by, you know, vision and poetry and, and, you know, just experience. Yeah, the the Dark Sky does a great job with having the photo contest, right? And I know from previous experience, I, I've worked to try and requisition some some pieces for actual beer labels, believe it or not. And to find people who know much about the sky is like in the art world is actually pretty hard, at least around here. So what I had to do is I kind of had to coach the artists I selected and how to kind of coach him along on, on what he should do and point him in the right direction and point him in different resources. But I know I scoured a whole bunch of different places and, and it was really difficult to find an, an artist who, when I say artist, you know, like graphic designer or someone who usually in their like early mid to late twenties and they're trying to, you know, they, they didn't really have a concept. They didn't have a concept of any kind of like night sky, any kind of starry night art. It just wasn't, it wasn't something they ever thought about. And they just were like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't even know what I'd, I'd do for this. So it, I think that'll be great, Ken. I think that'll be, that'll be really good. I think Ken. Yeah. I'm going to see what we can do. I, I might be drafted into being <laughs> in a committee. So yeah, I'll let you know if we get an art track going on in, in our research. That'll be huge. I, I would love it. I, I love good art and I, I would love to see people really embrace and from an artistic standpoint, embrace you know, the, the amazing night sky. And, and Frank, you already do this with your astrophotography. Ireland actually had like a young, some a targeted astrophotography workshop for, for younger people. I think it's, it's something like whenever anyone sees the sky, they, they get curious and they, they get really inspired. They, you know, you don't really do that with a, you know, like a building as much. Some buildings yeah. are really nice if they're well thought out and well designed, but for the most part, you just, you know, you're not, you're not thinking the same way. Exactly. I, you know, I think that one of the things that I, one of the more popular blog posts of mine on my website is uh, nightskyresourcecenter.org is, was about awe, right? And how the night sky inspires the sense of awe and how important it is. Because, you know, when you experience awe, you know, you have this feeling of, you know, you, you have these pro-social behaviors, right? You're, you're more empathetic, you're more compassionate, you're more, you know, willing to help people just from experiencing this sense of, of, of awe. And there's probably nothing more effective at creating this sense of awe in people as the night sky. It just happens. You go under the night sky and you just get this sense of awe. And, and I think that's, you know, a really important 
you know, a thing to do to reach people and to bring his think once you get people under a dark sky like that, it's easy to get them into the movement, right? And to, to get them to understand the, the importance of night sky, why it should be protected. And, and so I think those types of, of experiences sort of draw people in, right? And so we're, we're lucky in a sense that we have this resource that has the power to do that. This resource that we're trying to protect has the power to like pull people into the movement to help protect it just because of its just beauty and awe-inspiring nature. So I think that's something that we as Night Sky Advocates should be very grateful for, that we have this resource that is very compelling, right? And it almost in, in some ways makes our job a little bit easier to get people on board. Yep. Frank, I'm going to challenge you on that that idea of that awe ah, makes everyone better. Because right here, we're going to dive into a few articles on astrotourism. But before we get there, I have this piece from Inside Hook written by Tobias Carroll. Is stargazing better as a social activity? Hook notes a recent NPR article that detailed the Cherry Springs Star Party, a party that apparently had an overflow waiting list of 400 people. That's 150 shy of the initial allotment of spaces. For those of you at home who have never been to a star party, I recently was interviewed on a space tourist podcast where I helped describe the scene. But star parties are just generally events where amateur astronomers and astrophotographers spend a weekend together in a field geeking out over the night sky, galaxies, nebulas, gear. It's fun for the whole family. You get to see really cool handmade stuff, and it's always a good time. But a couple months ago, we had Scott Morgan on, the assistant manager of the park area overseeing Cherry Springs. And I got the sense the public viewing nights have provided some challenges for the park service. Among the most obvious, Dark Sky Park is essentially a 24-hour facility, making staffing arrangements tricky as how to properly provide safe experiences for guests. So I found this interesting considering the National Park Service had a Facebook post that occurred only a few days after the Perseids. And it was only a few days after Perseus weekend at Mount Rainier National Park. As was evident, the park experienced the following issues, including trampling off fragile subalpine meadows, parking in prohibited street sides, rogue camping, also known as camping in areas that are not permitted, and of course, trash, because people just leave trash. I don't understand that part, but people just love to leave trash everywhere. Almost an echo of the same story can be found at Joshua Tree, where a mighty Los Angeles denizen somehow won off to Seattle folks by simply fording their own roads through the parklands. These challenges combine with, and let's be honest, the fact that most people really don't engage with the night. You know, Frank, you were mentioning about this beautiful, nice guy. They, they actually don't engage with the night that much, or rather, I should say, any type of dimness or darkness. That makes me wonder, is stargazing really better as a social activity? I, I love that. I love that question. It's, you know, because it really kind of does bring up a lot of, of issues that, you know, we need to deal with. But I think the way I see it, it's, you know, with parks becoming more active and, and more visited at night than they have been in the past, I think it tends to extend the problems that they're often encountered during the daytime into the night. So yeah, I, I'm sure that star parties cause, you know, a lot of environmental damage when you get that big of a group of people together doing something like that. But so does, 
you know, the crowds that emerge whenever there's a, a, you know, a bear sighting along the road in Yellowstone or, you know, some other event that that draws in a lot of people. You know, there's there are just with the with the crowds in, you know, not just national parks, but all, all parks these days like Cherry Springs. It, it just has a, a, you know, it just creates its own problems. And the fact that we're doing more at night now and we're doing more star parties kind of takes those normal daytime problems and just extends them into the night. And I think that's, you know, what, th- I think that's really the challenge of, of having more star parties and having more, you know, of those types of issues. I, I personally, I tend to, I have been to many star parties. I tend to avoid them because for me, you know, I, I, I'm looking for a different type of experience. I, I'm not looking for a crowd of people to enjoy the night sky with. You know, I'm looking for those types of kind of life-changing experiences. You know, when you're sitting under a Bortle Class One sky and you, you're just your jaw drops. So I'm looking at sort, sort of for a different experience. I'm glad star parties exist. I think it, it, it opens up this world of the parks at night to a huge group of people that would never experience that. So I think they're a huge benefit for getting people to understand the problem and the issue and, and working to, to improve the situation. But I think it's, you know, it's not, it's just not for everybody. You know, there are, there are benefits of not, of not going to start parties and finding those experiences on your own. One last point on that is that when I teach, night sky photography workshops one of the things i always spend a lot of time talking to my students about is is sort of this night sky etiquette right what you don't do around other people at night and how do you minimize the effects that you're having on astrophotographer down the road or or you know other people who are trying to experience the night sky so i think the idea of of having a night sky ethic or etiquette is a really important part or piece of that puzzle as well in terms of like preventing what happened in Mount Rainier and, you know, and Joshua Tree. Yeah. The, one of our previous guests, Dalen Burt, when I was up at the Cherry Spring Star Party this past summer, we, we actually, I actually was one of the pieces talking about nice guy etiquette. He made a great video. He makes, so again, similar to you, Frank, he, he tries to teach people on the technical pieces of astrophotography, the gear and all the equipment and stuff like that. And he was talking about what not to do at a star party, you know? And, right. and my thought was the, the thing that always gets me is people don't realize this. You don't, you don't think at all about this because you, you never ever think about what happens to your car or you just lock it and you just walk away. Right. You just don't, you don't ever think about that. And I know we just got a new Outback and this thing lights up like a freaking globe when you lock the car. And I don't even know where all the lights are. I'm still trying to figure out where all the lights are. I, you know, trying to, usually you can put some covering on it and whatnot, but I, yeah. I don't know. There's still lights in there that, that I haven't found yet. So yeah, you know, the first time, the first time you do it or the first time you go to a star party and you'll, you'll screw up every which way with light. Cause you just yeah. don't think about it. And uh, you, you remember, you definitely remember. You don't want to yeah. be that guy next time. Exactly. <laughs> Well, continuing along the line of thought, we have this article from Backpacker by Emma Veit, uh, the best no-crowd places to go stargazing. So Emma starts off her piece with this. Last fall, I went stargazing at Joshua Tree, and just like Frank said, spent most of the night listening to crowds hoot and holler from the campsites nearby. Sometimes 
You just want to count shooting stars without hearing the incredible EDM beat pumping from someone's tiny Bluetooth speaker far off in the distance. Now let's see, Frank, I want to, I want to gauge you. Let's go on the list here. This is what she says as being the, uh, the best no crowd place to go. Uh, all right. So Natural Bridges National Monument, Utah. Yes or no? Absolutely. Fantastic. We've done, you know, the Park Service collected data there. It's one of the darkest parks in the United States. That whole area in southern Utah is is fantastic. Big Bend National Park in Texas. Yes or no? Um, yes, they did. They've done a huge amount of work. Um, this is probably, geez, maybe eight or ten years ago now. Maybe they they redesigned and did a lighting retrofit for all of their all of their administrative buildings and their visitor center. And we asked them before and after. The Park Service has some before and after photos of before the retrofit and after. And before, you know, you could see where the lights from the visitor center were lighting up the cliffs and the hillsides around the, the, the valley. And, and afterwards, almost all of that light pollution was gone. So they've done a tremendous amount of work getting really dark skies there. So I would give Big Ben a big thumbs up on that. Okay. Chaco Culture National Historical Park in New Mexico. Another fantastic site. A little harder to get to, but it's definitely worth it. It's, you know, very, and they, they've also done a lot of work to maintain their dark skies. They've had dark skies, you know, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. There aren't many light domes on the horizon, and they do a lot of work to try to maintain those, those night skies. And that includes working with BLM on, you know, oil and gas leases in the, the surrounding area and, and other, other efforts like that. Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve in Obviously, I haven't been I specifically, haven't been there specifically, but I've been to a couple of places in central Idaho doing some master photography and some river rafting and up there. And I was pretty impressed with the the amount of of dark places there are. I you know, I don't know again, it's sort of the, you know, with Billings and and Helena and it seems like there were like three or four cities in around me that the light domes were not particularly horrible. So I, I, I don't know much about that, that dark sky reserve. Maybe uh, Ken has more insight on that. I just happen to know some folks that work there doing from UCLA that do some observations and some of the reports there. And also some of the ideas of how to make sure, like you were saying, that the, the growth doesn't of other lighting outside of the boundaries don't impact there. So I've never been there. I really want to. One of my one of the people I work with, she's actually just did a finished up a internship there. And she said it was amazing. Nice. Yeah, Frank, you were just up in Montana, right? Yeah. Yeah. Was, was that for, was that an astrophotography workshop? So I was in that was actually a river trip. So we did the Smith River in, in Montana. And you know, it was it's northern montana and it's not to, not really around too many pla- you know other places but really nice nice guys got some good pictures from the river that's great we were up in alaska and there was no night sky there was no night <laughs> so yeah <laughs> so there was no night sky but it was, it was pretty good too so katahdin woods and waits national monument in maine yes or no i haven't been there specifically but i have one of the the sort of the early pioneers in the night sky movement in the park service was Acadia National Park. And they have a great night sky festival every year that draws in 
you know, thousands and thousands of people every year. Great programming for the night sky. They they really are it's sort of a big part of what they promote and why people come to 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 Acadia. So that's so other those two parks, Caden Woods and, and Waits, I'm not as familiar with, but I do know that there's a there's a bit of a culture in Maine um, to protect night skies. Yeah, I, I did a hundred mile wilderness a while ago in 20, 2017, 2018, and it was we had a, just a, a great dry September week. It was unlike Maine. And it was pretty nice. Like the sky was was very enjoyable. We we're in the woods the whole time, but you could see you could see uh, nice. you could see stuff. So that was the good news. Okay, final one, final one for you, Frank. Newport State Park in Wisconsin. How about this one? So the familiarity I have with Newport State Park is there. It's a like just like Sherry Springs. It's kind of a destination for astrophotographers, and there's a tremendous amount of just amazing astrophotography that happens there. And so I think that from what I've seen there at some place, I definitely want to go just because they, they have seen a pretty amazing night sky from what I've seen. Ken, I feel like this is one you've been to. Me? I, I have not been to. What about Ken? No, actually, it, I've heard of it. I've, my partner has gone to Washington Island before, which is right a little across the lake a little bit from there. And now that I'm hearing about it, it's like, oh, one thing I did discover previous research on an article I wrote about how accessible dark skies are to people like that live in Chicago, for example. You know, most of the students we work with are just live in Chicago. So if they want to see a true dark sky, this is actually the closest place from Chicago to get fundamentally the darkest skies you can you can find. And it's I think it's about 400 miles away. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, now that, that I have to add that to a list if I'm ever out out by Chicago, out by <laughs> on a Green Bay, I guess is probably more applicable. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's good to know. I yeah, well, I've only been to one of those places, and I've been to I, my favorite moment ever in stargazing was for Alcon one year. We actually got to stargaze at the end of the road in Bryce Canyon. Is that the Rainbow Road, something like that, something like Rainbow Point, yeah. all the way down there at the bottom. Got the stargaze there, and that was one of the the best experiences as an East Coaster. Going to that kind of sky was like, you know, it's night and day. No moisture. It was like it's amazing. Skies without water. This is this is crazy. You guys are too spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that probably just a shout out to Capitol Reef National Park. Oh yeah, um, I went there with my wife last spring and it went out at like three o'clock in the morning to, to shoot some astrophotography. And it's, I think without a doubt, it was the, it was the darkest sky I'd ever seen. I mean, conditions were perfect. There was, you know, no moisture in the air. It was just so bright. And, you know, it was one of those nights where you could kind of see shadows from the starlight and it was just fantastic. So, and I think that I'm not sure if this is still the case, but in the, one of the, darkest parks that we ever measured at the park service was Capitol Reef. And again, they understand that's such an, a valuable resource for them and they really kind of promote it and do a lot to protect it. Oh, you know, I'll try to say like the same thing about Capitol Reef. I've, I've experienced the camped out there for a week once. And yeah, that was where I looked up and said, okay, I know these guys pretty well. And it's like, oh, that's a strange star. <laughs> no, wait a minute. That's Uranus. I mean, yeah, spotted spot with the eye, no problem. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Wow. Did it look yeah. look blue? 
Yeah, kind of greenish blue. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I can actually see Uranus. I was like, wow. Yeah. And that was so naked eye. Ken, that was naked eye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. You guys, you guys are blowing my mind right now. This is crazy. One of the sort of paths for a dark sky, right, is, is M33, Triangulum Galaxy. And, you know, if you can see that with the naked eye, that's about as good as you're going to get. And and I think I saw it. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. It was in the right place. And I think it that I, I could see it from Capitol Reef. It was pretty cool. That's a mark of a good astronomer when you say, I think I saw it. That's, that's it. I think. <laughs> Well, friends, you're listening to Light Pollution News. This is a once-a-month show that details all of the pertinent news around the topic of light pollution. And as always, you can learn about all of the stories featured here in this show by going over to our website, lightpollutionnews.com, or by following us over on Reddit at r slash lightpollutionnews. Have you had a chance to check out our Instagram page? It's a great place to connect with us. One of our listeners, Stephen Hummel, maybe a future guest, Hummel, actually connected with us for that story on the Texas oil wells. So that, that was a great little piece, and we're very thankful that he was able to reach that one out to us. So if you happen to have some great news, uh, you'd like to share anything our way or not so great news, we'll take both. Feel free to pass it along, especially if you're doing something interesting or doing some interesting work, You especially like you know what's going on down in Texas. Let us know. Reach out. And maybe you're not on Instagram, no problem. Just connect with us on LinkedIn, where we regularly run engaging prompts for you, the listener, interact and have your voice heard. You can also reach out directly to me just by emailing me at bill at lightpollutionnews.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you find podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, for which we have actual special survey questions over on Spotify, just like one poll question and just another prompt over there. So, you know, you listener can actually like have your voice heard. So it's always good engaging with listeners and hearing, hearing from you guys. Before we continue along, I want to thank my excellent guests today. We have Frank Tarina and Ken Walchek. I'm always so excited for recording days because I really do get to speak to amazing folks like yourselves, gentlemen. It thrills me to know and to have you guys on. This is truly the part that really does energize me. So, Frank, I know you're heavily involved in education. You recently did Astronomy in Chile, the Educational Ambassadors Program. This sounds freaking incredible. Yeah. What, so you're, you're an educator. Now you're an educator, right? You, you, you work over at University of Denver as an adjunct professor. And uh, mm-hmm. so I'm curious because you, you work on the environmental policy, educating students on environmental policy and do we see any of these issues that we're talking about today start showing up in any of that curriculum? I think the the one area is is sort of the idea of sensory ecology, like we talked about before. You know, I think the the idea that there are many different, other than just the typical water pollution, air pollution, you know, hazardous waste, those types of environmental issues that we're much more familiar with. I think that there's more discussion of other other pollutants like light and like noise and even it's like there's some some talk now about like olfactory and smelling and the the importance of that for for wildlife and disrupting that is is you know what it does really is it removes a ton of information that the animal needs to survive from their you know they lose that ability to access that information we all know how much smelling is important for for wildlife, right? If you remove that sense from them, they're at a huge disadvantage. Same with with light, and there are lots of nocturnal animals that that require 
or rely on low levels of light to to you know function and and adding light to the environment sort of takes that opportunity to to away from them so we're starting to see a lot more of an expansion of the understanding of what environmental degradation means and it's not just this typical pollutions that pollutants that we have talked about for you know decades it's these other ideas that are sort of gaining more more traction in, in curriculum. So yeah, I think there is an expansion of this idea of what environmental quality is. And I think that a lot of that is a result of us looking at the environment more in terms of sustainability and looking at it in terms of you know how all these pieces fit together. And, and I think that has broadened the idea of what environmental what the environment is what it represents and and how it's being degraded so yeah that's probably the biggest area where i've seen issues like light pollution and noise and other issues like that come into play frank one of the questions i do have is you know if our current trajectory i don't know how much environment will be left right like in the next 30 years um mm-hmm. seeing massive expansion of urbanization everywhere and obviously, you know, the West is slow to catch up to kind of part of the rest of the world where it's already, you see, expansion, urbanization. This has been going on for quite a while. And in that case, in that scenario, is it is it worth discussing environmental policy? What's what's the point in even caring about it if we're, all we're going to do is pave over it? That's, that's really good. I, I, that's a really good point. And it's not – it's not unlike a lot of the questions that my students have for me, you know, when, when they look at climate change and, you know, when they, they see some of these devastating impacts that we're starting to see now. And there, there's, there's a lot of real, you know, people call it like climate anxiety or environmental anxiety. And people really don't know what to think anymore. They don't know what to do. You know, there are people that younger generation are, making decisions not to have kids because of, you know, environmental conditions in the future. And, you know, so there, there's a lot of that happening right now. And so I get that question a lot, like, what's the point? And, you know, and the answer that I typically give is that, is that we've faced, humans have faced issues like this many, many times in the past. And for much of that time, it seems like nothing has happened, right? We're not really caring about the environment. We're not doing anything about it. There aren't policies to protect things. And then things change quickly, right? They change fast. So you have these periods of not much happening. And then all of a sudden, these periods where things change overnight, and you get these, you know, they, it's it's kind of in, in ecology and it's it's this idea of punctuated equilibrium, right? So you have these moments where nothing's happening and then the conditions align and then things happen really fast. And I think that that is what kind of gives me, it encourages me is I know that that's happened in the past and I know that we're getting to that tipping point where that has to happen. And so... I think in the next you know, generation, we're going to see things change very quickly. Hopefully it's not too late, but, but I think it's, that's, the, that's why it's important to kind of the study the policy, to keep policy you know, moving forward, because in, at some point when all the, these things align, things can change really fast. And that's what I'm hoping for. Well, that's an excellent answer. And now we're going to put it to the test because we have technology. Technology does amazing things, but 
consumer technology right now is we're at a an interesting point. And I'll be honest, I'm hearing echoes of the LED revolution in some of these news articles. I remember a decade ago, the benefits of LED were being touted. It could, you know, reduce costs, or reduce carbon impact, it would improve lighting. It would reduce light pollution. It would be great for the environment. And I'd say it definitely came through more efficient, but it doesn't do any anything better for the environment. It doesn't do anything better for ecology in any way. For instance, take this this whole goods ultra bright solar light that just came through one of my feeds. So it's a suppressor, all right, guys. This light aims to enhance outdoor spaces while promoting environmental consciousness by utilizing 432 LEDs to provide 2,500 lumens, presumably to ensure deer don't invade your garden. To really, 2,500 lumens is on the extreme high end of the brightness scale. In watts terms, that's comparable to over 250 watts. I'm not sure how lights like these aren't classified as nuisance lights, as I don't see a utilitarian purpose outside of trying to irritate the living heck out of your neighbor and weaponize lighting. Bonus points to Whole Goods, they have the audacity to show an artist's rendering of these lights being utilized with starlit dusky sky in the background. Or maybe <laughs> that's the color of the night sky after you use them. I'm not sure. But let's take a little step back here. I went to my harbor store yesterday a couple of times because, you know, you never go just once. You realize you need another stupid thing. You have to go right back out. And it's an old mom and pop true value. Staff super knowledgeable, always very helpful. And I noticed that the only exterior lights they have are these always-on motion-detecting lights. You know, the ones I'm talking about, they stay on at a dimmer light, but they're always on. And then they get, like, ultra-bright the moment anything, a leaf goes in front of it. And then if either of you guys have a Waze camera, I know I get this all the time, you'll get ads for having new spotlight cameras because everything has to have a giant spotlight on it. So my question to you guys is, are these these terrible fi- – well, I consider them terrible fixtures. Other people may consider them very useful fixtures, but this is my perspective right here. Are they a product of the dog or is the tail wagging a dog? Who's Who wants this more, consumers or makers? Do we have any – maybe this isn't the right panel to, to be asking it, but I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that. Yeah, so I just want to address like what you said about LEDs. Like they don't solve a problem on their own. But the technology is so workable. I mean, think about compared to old Cobra head HPS, you know, high pressure sodium lights, you know, that light just goes everywhere and it's, you know, that's pretty uncontrolled. It's like a sledgehammer of light. So you got LEDs, but they're, they're so compact, they're energy efficient. So there's a lot of benefits to get from my, my real gripe is with is they're not really being used to their potential. They're, they, you can control the light they give off so well. And in last decade or so, the color temperature has been gotten so much better, the amount of blue light they emit. So the technology is there. It's just now the design and the application needs to be done right. And problem is, I think to answer your question about the, the, the dog wagging the tail, the tail wagging the dog, I think it's both. I think manufacturers are just producing stuff that's cheap and it gives a lot of light. And it's like, if you want to buy something that, that lights up your yard, well, you want the most you can for your money, right? I mean, that's kind of the thinking. And so a lot of manufacturers just can spill a lot of light out in your backyard. No problem. I mean, that's that's cheap and easy to do. But then the consumer, like, 
they don't have a lot of choice because, and maybe that's the only examples they've seen. So it's, a, I think it's a chicken and the egg thing. Maybe the, the dog and the tail and more it's like a chicken and the egg, because if you don't have the option to get really good fixtures, really good light for whatever your purpose is, you're not even going to think about it as an option. Yeah. So. Maybe, the, maybe the narrative needs to change from, cause I feel like brightness is the marketing th- phrase, right? The marketing mm-hmm. catchphrase that you're looking for. Maybe it needs to change over to you know neighborhood friendly or something like that, that kind of phrasing. Because some of these fixtures, they really have no point except for to terrorize your neighbors. They really are, like unless you're living in the boonies, there really are lights that are out just to weaponize lights. You can't tell me that a 2,500 lumen light on your, the side of your house that goes right into your neighbor's house isn't a weapon. That's weaponizing a light. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't understand how more people living next to those don't have more issues. You know what I mean? Like, how can there not be more complaints? I mean, I think there's going to be a tipping point where the use of these kind of lights is going to just drive so many people batty that they're going to go, we got to do something about it. Well, there was, we did have an article last month which discussed some nuisance lighting laws that were being put into effect in New Jersey. So it, it may, I suspect you'll start seeing more of this stuff come up now that we have these fixtures and maybe we'll get a push towards more of a, a neighborhood friendly lighting. Which brings me to my next article here. The Washington Post had a great piece that started out by visually illustrating the effects of irresponsible lighting on Chelan County, Washington, between 2018 and 2019. Chelan County sits on the eastern side of the Cascades. It began a $1.9 million LED streetlight conversion in 2018, retrofitted 3,600 high-pressure sodium lights to a mix of 3,000, 4,000 Kelvin light fixtures with the latter requirement by the Washington State Department of Transit guidelines. On a positive side, the conversion saw real energy savings due to what the article cites as enough power to power up 120 all-electric homes in the county for a year. On a negative side, whereas the high-pressure sodium fixtures previously emitted 2.3 times the natural light level, they increased to 3.69 times the natural night light level, and skies actually got brighter, taking everyone by surprise. What ended up happening in Chelan County is probably what we see happening wherever LED streetlight conversions are taking place. When utilizing a 4,000 Kelvin bulb, approximately 29% of the light emitted is blue. The blue light, due to a shorter wavelength, quickly scattered and impacted the horizon. And for those of you curious about the percentage for 3,000 Kelvin lights, it's somewhere in the ballpark of 21%. Here in Philly, the city just announced full replacement of all streetlights with 3,000 Kelvin fixtures over the next two years, which, of course, Carlton Williams, the Department of Streets commissioner, justified by blankly using unsupported statements touting how these lights will naturally prevent violent crimes. And I'm curious, you two jets, if anyone wants to take a bet on how that turns out. The city here plans to utilize diffuse optics, which the claim is that this will reduce the brightness of the LED source. So I went back to one of our guests from last month, Bill Green, for more details on to understand how diffuse optics worked. Apparently, diffuse optics are a powder coating that obscures the LED bulbs. However, due to the nature of diffuse fixtures, more light may just end up going upward and not downward. To his credit, the city does claim that these are dark sky compliant fixtures. As a backstory, the most recent acorn fixture conversion, the glassy fixtures they either dangle from or sit atop of single light poles, appear to have been designed overly bright, which in a similar manner may be 
the effect of having diffuse coating on those those fixtures. So here in Philly, I suspect many other urban areas are experiencing this. We have a firm belief that brighter is safer, regardless of what the crime statistics tell you about daytime crimes. I surmise that there's multiple factors at play, and they're just helping to muddy the message as it goes out to, to different news sources. But I want to toss this over to you guys. So what are your thoughts? What are some good examples of street lighting that we can actually use to, to show that you can you can responsibly light cities, responsibly light maybe even major cities. Well, first of all, I want to talk about the Shelling County thing. Frank, were you involved in that? I don't, I don't know if it might have been. We, we were, we we were involved. I think we did measurements for them, and it was right around the time I retired that that was kind of coming to fruition. So I wasn't, I'm not up to date on what the results from our work were. Yeah, because I think this kind of is the core of the story to start with, because the, the National Park Service did is you, you guys used your all sky camera, measured the sky glow over Chelan County. They replaced lights, like you mentioned, and then they measured it again. But the, the I kind of earlier said about the growth in light pollution research has been because of data. And there is a satellite the the instrument is called the VIRS instrument on the satellite that literally maps the nighttime of the Earth at night every night. And the problem is it doesn't see blue light. So according to the observations from the satellite, this retrofit from these, you know, high pressure sodium lights that shine all directions to these well shielded 3000, mostly 3000, there's some 4000 K lights, you figure, oh, they're shielded, they're bluer, but they're shielded, that should you know, and that's what the satellites saw. They said, hey, guess what? We don't see as much light coming out of this this town, this county. But from the ground, the light, the sky globe got brighter. So that was where we kind of say, oh, if we're relying on these satellite images to gauge what, whether we're making an improvement, we've got to rethink that. So, I, you know, Frank, if you had any more to add to that. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction with the, with the satellite data. Yeah, from my understanding that you're right, it doesn't see blue light, but it's really sensitive to the, the amber, orange, reddish wavelengths. So when I mentioned before that the the oil and gas field in North North and South Carolina or North and South Dakota looked huge on the satellite data, it looked as big as Chicago, but in reality it wasn't that bright. But it looked like that to the satellite because it was primarily gas you know, flaring, which is, which is yellow and orange and red. Right. So it was the, the satellite was more sensitive to that type of, of light emission than it was to Chicago. And so, yeah, it's an important point that, you know, the satellite data can be, you know, can be misleading. And so really kind of seeing what the conditions are on the ground is really the, the way to kind of make sure that we're not, we're really seeing the real. So, all right. Do you want me to jump into the Philly thing? <laughs> yeah, let's do it, Ken. Now's so, the time. Right. We just, you know, the Chicago over about two and a half years or so, finishing up about two years ago or so, did a, ret- a retrofit of high pressure sodium to 3000 K LEDs. We did like 300,000 of them. So that's about, about half of what Philly's doing. I mean, that's about half Philly's doing about half of that, but it's still going to be be big. And so I know what this can do to your, your communities. Cause I've seen it firsthand. 
Now, I just want to pull out a few things that was, were said by Philadelphia. One of them on their website said, I'm going to quote it here, said, Philadelphia will replace all the city's 130,000 130, streetlights with energy efficient bulbs over the next two years with the dual purpose of showering high crime neighborhoods in brighter light and cutting electricity use citywide. I really worry about, yes, I really <laughs> worry about what they mean by showering high crime areas in brighter light. Let's talk environmental justice issues. I, I, can, I can tell you exactly yeah. what they mean because I've I've spoken mm-hmm. to some of the people in the streets department and they really has, to quote from Alan, we are stuck in a 20th century mindset for 21st century problems, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the city really does believe that light can solve problems. They, they, the people who are in the streets department, that is something they truly believe and they find it laughable that you could even suggest something otherwise. Regardless of daytime statistics, are there no crimes that yeah. happen during the daytime, evidently? I, I don't know. But yeah, so Ken, I know you want to speak a little bit about social justice here. Feel free. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, I part of Dark Sky, Dark Sky Chicago. We have our local chapter of Dark Sky International here. And we get, we get emails all the time from folks saying, hey, I got this problem in my neighborhood. Can you help? And one of them went to this big parking lot of a, it's actually a, a regional brewery and had their parking lot lights were these LEDs that were pointed sideways, practically, you know, they're supposed to be pointed down these flat panel LEDs. And this is like what happens when lighting goes wrong. And the first thing I always do when someone has a problem like that is say like, well, get some consensus, get some, I bet your neighbors are all feeling the same way. And he's like, well, I don't know. I I think I'm the only one who's thinking about this. And I went to his neighborhood at night and literally took a a photograph of every single house along that facing that parking lot. Every single one of them had everything from plastic bags to blackout curtains, to shades, to things put in their windows. And I said, you have everybody on your block feels the same way as you, you do. And, you know, and that's the thing. They don't have the choice of like, they didn't even think that this was something that was in their power. And that's what happens when a, when a town says, all right, you know what, we're going to put really bright lights all over the place. They better be very concerned about splashing a lot of light in people's houses because that's what's going to happen. And, you know, don't even get me on the going on the <laughs> correlation between light and crime. <laughs> well, let me, let me tell you probably, this is what I surmise is going on here. That there's a couple of things that work. First off, there's a purchasing decision and trying to put a square peg into a round hole. I think that's part of it. There was probably this is all me just surmising stuff here. I want to make sure I'm not, you know, I'm not speaking for the city or for anything that they did. Second, they have we have a major crime problem. And the city seems inept to actually solve the problem. And this is a way for them to look like they're actually doing something for the problem. And I don't think that's changing anytime. I don't think they're going to solve the crime problem anytime soon. And this is something that they can look proactive in doing, regardless if it prevents any crime or not. I don't know if they truly think it prevents crime. I can't speak for that. But the consensus from the people I've spoken with have made me feel that it's a foregone conclusion that light prevents crime. Um, So... That's what I surmise is going on, Ken. Yes. Yeah. So just to, just to throw in an example here. So I did a study where I took, this is with ISS images. So at least we have the color information. I took a, a number of ISS images of Chicago and at night did a, a there's a neighborhood, the west side of Chicago, which is, has a high crime rate. And then literally right across the road is the town of Oak Park. Now I did an analysis where I said, okay, I'm going to take the 
the exact foot of Oak Park and move that over so I have the exact same size of neighborhood, almost exact same population. The the two, the, the area of Austin in Chicago was almost two and a half times brighter than Oak Park, literally side by side. The crime rate was eight times higher. So if you're saying that the brighter light is preventing crime, it's not. Because across the just literally across the street in Oak Park, where it's, the lights are very dark compared to that neighborhood, the crime rate is eight times lower. So a city saying, we're going to pump in a bunch of lights to fix the problem. All they're doing is putting a Band-Aid on something and saying they, they, they solved the problem. So I would love to see the crime rates fall in, in Philly. Definitely, but it's not going to be because of the light. Let's invest in the community, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I, I I agree. I would love to see the crime rates crime, crime mm-hmm. rates fall here. Yeah, and like you said, it's like putting a band aid on cancer. That's mm-hmm. kind of what you're doing. Hey, sticking to the streetlight right. theme, I do have some positive stories here. So I didn't mean to get us all down and beaten up here. We're going up and down a lot today. But sticking close to the streetlight theme, the Financial Times put out a really interesting video. Could new streetlights save our biodiversity? whereby the article stresses that LEDs themselves, as you said, Ken, they're really not the problem. Rather, the introduction of the blue wavelengths that we use into the night and effectively we're blinding insects like pollinating moths. New streetlight tests are underway in Germany on specifically designed street lamps that apparently have dramatically decreased what they coin the vacuum cleaner effect. That's a very nice term of trapping insects in a light field. Would that be something that would be pretty interesting? Have you guys seen any information on this besides the actual news clip? I think I know the researchers. Yeah, they're working with, this is the Zlux folks, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool because what they're a lot of, think of it like this, you have a lighting company that wants to say, hey, can we design lights that are less ecologically impactful? And then they went to the researchers who say, oh, we, you know, like, for example, for bats, for example, we know which, for the population of bats in this area, we know which parts of the spectrum affect them the most. So let's design a light that literally fits this environment that would impact the least amount of these, these animals. Same thing with insects and things like that. So I think it's this, this is like one of those, you're right. An encouraging news story where you're like, you know what, if, if, if research and our knowledge can go into work with industry, we could actually be producing some amazing, you know, future products. That's very inspirational, man. I, I would love to see something like this actually get into industry. This is, you know, the promise of LEDs. I'll believe it if something like this comes out, Ken. I'll believe it. Well, before we go any further, we have our ecology and a really interesting special literature piece coming up. We're really close, folks. But I and I, I promise these guys I have them out in another 15 minutes. So so hopefully I can we're gonna get there. I know we are. It's not hopefully, I know we're gonna get there. I want to give a huge thank to my guests today, Frank Serena and Ken Walchek. Gentlemen. How can people best find out about what you're doing, any projects you're doing, or or what you might be have your hand in? So, so for me, my main vehicle for staying involved in the the night sky world is my website, which is nightskynetwork.org. And so, feel free. That's sort of where I I do some blog posts and and kind of ruminate on night skies issues <laughs> and so and also sort of share some literature or some research research that kind of catches my eye and gives me a chance to kind of write on that and stay involved in the topic so that's the best place to kind of figure out what's going on with with me and frank is that the same site that has all of your astrophotography 
Yeah. So my yeah my my night sky photography and my astrophotography is also linked there, and it's okay. uh, it's nightskyresourcecenter.org. They're fantastic photos. Really, really great Thanks. work, Frank. They yeah. they're spectacular. Anyone who loves great shots in the night sky, go to the website and definitely go to learn more because it's it's just a great resource all around. Ken, how about you? Let's see. So I, if you want to see what we're doing in Chicago. You can actually go to darkskychicago.org. That's our local chapter of Dark Sky International. We're, we're doing a lot. <laughs> post, we try to post the stories up there so you can kind of see what's going on in our region. Also, if you want to see what we're doing at the Adler Planetarium, if you go to adlerplanetarium.org and just search for Far Horizons, and it'll get you to the Far Horizons page where we see all the, all the work we do with students and, and, you know, and the research. What's some of the cool stuff you've done in Far Horizons? Like I said, well, we've designed an instrument that we fly to the stratosphere to map light pollution across regions. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. Uh, um, yeah, and I'm waiting for you. Got to tell me what's going on down there in Palm Beach, Florida. So I need to know. I think our our balloon won't go that far. That's fine. <laughs> Maybe we'll get there someday. One of the coolest things we did in the recent past is uh, there's a meteorite that was a meteor that was seen over the Midwest, and its flight trajectory was over looked like it would would have the debris field would have fallen in Lake Michigan. And so we, with a bunch of high school students designed and built a, a mission to search the bottom of Lake Michigan and pick up meteorite fragments. We, we built a whole thing called Starfall. It's a, it's a whole magnetic sled thing that was drawn by, by a boat. We ended up working with NOAA and NASA and the shed aquarium here in Chicago and a whole bunch of other people. And so, yeah. That, that sounds amazing. That's I want to take. I want to become a high school kid again and go and join this program. That sounds Check out fire right. See if you can take your age and get it. <laughs> wow. Oh man, Ken. All right. Well, let's finish the show off, shall we? On the ecology front, we continue to see strong amounts of research, as Ken alluded to earlier. There's no doubt that Allen affects behavior. So let's go through them, shall we? We have one article from Marine Pollution Bulletin that looked at the decision-making abilities of rockfish under light, under artificial light at night. The results indicate that fish exposed to Allen appear to avoid safe dark areas when presented with them, raising habitat risk. Another preliminary study from the Environmental Biology of Fishes indicates that Allen changes foraging behaviors of Japanese eels. Researchers use traps to catch the eels, noticing in a control Void of artificial light, the eel catches peaked at sunset. However, in the study area, which utilized artificial light exposure, eel catch time was significantly delayed up to 120 minutes past sunset. From scientific reports, utilizing artificial light at night as a corollary for urbanization found that of 24 Australian raptor species looked at, 13 of them showed particular tolerance, positive responses to urban environments. Conversely, 11 of them showed avoidance to them, indicating some species are becoming more adapted to the urban setting than others. From the Science of Total Environment, a study looking at dusk-flying European night jars noticed that artificial light at night extended their nocturnal flight activity over that of a control group lacking artificial light at night. The reasons cited appeared to initially be stemming from improved visibility from sky glow, but more interestingly, the bright clouds from light pollution further increases activity versus the dark clouds of non-lit skies. And finally, Alan may be affecting the cognitive function of birds. When these species, the great tits, were exposed to Alan, 
they failed to complete tasks that were completed by the control population. And that comes to us from science of the total environment. Any other articles I missed out there, Frank, Ken, anything you guys want to chime in with? All right. No, I don't think so. Those are some really good ones. You know, they, they, some of them sort of reinforce some of the, the analyses that have been done in the past. I remember writing about another article on underwater light pollution, basically, and, and that development from, you know, development on the shores of, of these estuaries were affecting the benthic communities, basically the, the bottom dwelling communities in these estuaries. And the worst offenders were the blue and green wavelengths because they were scattered less by the water. Again, switching to LEDs, right? We have that blue spike in the in light emissions is potentially could affect offshore areas greater than the the older like LPS and other more lower temperature lights. So I think you know this. So it's sort of repeating or confirming a lot of the some of the studies that I've I've read about, about that issue. Excellent. Thank you, Frank. There's good additions right there. All right. So let's finish up this show, shall we? The last piece concerns a brilliant write-up in LitHub entitled On the Rich and Radical History of Nightwalking. Few pieces of work effectively convey what I might call the spirituality of night. Bianca Gaiver's work does just that. Referencing cultural experiences throughout history, for instance, during medieval Europe, People use the time between sleeps to read, pray, and sometimes for traveling at night. And who knows, when you're best in a world of Christian mysticism, maybe you even encounter God or Satan on your way to your next trip. During the Enlightenment, embracing the dark of night liberated one from the rigid, rational world. And Guy Ever goes on to mention that Dickens himself walked upwards of 25 miles on some nights. For Black Americans, both pre- and post-Civil War, Walking at night proved challenging due to curfews put up in place by slave-owning Southerners or Jim Crow-minded communities. However, Gaiver references a story of how Frederick Douglass's mother would walk from sunup to sundown to visit Frederick, who resided on a different plantation. And I think I'd like to finish up today's show with this quote from Junichiro Ozaki from 1933. If light is scarce, then light is scarce. But the progressive Westerner is determined to always better his lot. From candle to oil lamp to oil lamp to gas lamp, gas light to electric light, his quest for a brighter light never ceases. He spares no pains to eradicate even the minutest shadow. I want to thank my guests today, Frank Tarina and Ken Walchek. It's been great having you guys on. I always love these Sundays. I get to learn so much from guests. I get to really, it's just it's just a great time, and I really look forward to doing this again sometime in the near future with you gentlemen. As a reminder, if you're loving Light Pollution News, please share the show or maybe provide us a rating review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're hating it and you've made it this long, congratulations, and please share it with your enemies. We would love that. You can learn more about the show by heading over to Light Pollution News where we have all the links that were mentioned in this show. You can also tag us in something cool on Instagram at light.pollution.news or chime in on LinkedIn or Reddit at r slash light pollution news. It's been a great night. Thank you, listeners. We'll be back next month with a new episode. I'm your host, Bill McGinney, and remember to always let the light shine only where it's needed. 